2: Welcome to the program. It's the Wednesday edition of the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you probably know by now, every weekday at 4 o'clock, we're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. And we love the live phone calls. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR numerically that's 6305757 you can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com you can also send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car the safest way to call the studio is to use the KSLR mobile app and just push the call now button and you will be connected immediately because it's Wednesday this is for us Old Testament night and tonight is one of those studies that a pastor absolutely loves more practical import for uh, New Testament Christians and um, perhaps any other story in the Old Testament. There's a lot of them, but this is just one of those for men and women who are facing real difficulties, trials in their lives, fear caused by our own personal giants, whatever they might be, uh, trials that seem to be about to overwhelm you. Uh, Tonight we see through David uh, how to deal with the giants in our lives, and tonight I can promise you, Goliath is going down. David kills Goliath. Tonight we finish First Samuel chapter 17. Of course, that means tomorrow is Thursday, the date day edition. Paula will be live in studio with me. One thing before we get to the questions, I would like all of you to keep in your prayers as the Lord brings us to heart and mind. Uh, tomorrow our kids and youth camp both start, and we have tons and tons of kids uh, who are going out to, to camp Um so many adult volunteers and and older kids college-age kids so we've got it covered that way but we just want to ask you to pray first that the kids would be safe of course that's always a concern Uh, but but even more in terms of priority than that is that their hearts would be open to hear to hear what the lord says pastor richard ortiz is going to be uh the speaker at the camp during most of the sessions and he will um we just want them to listen. Let the Lord really, really touch their hearts. Um, a little mini revival would be wonderful. That would be great. So all of that is happening here uh, starting tomorrow at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. One more time, three four zero ninety five eighty five 9585 for your live calls. Here's our first question that came in from Anonymous on our mobile app. And this references a question that we had yesterday about taking the Lord's name in vain. Um, uh, this person says, Some of my Christian friends often use the Lord's name in their conversations by saying, Oh God, or Oh my God, or God no. Um, or I might even add one, and this isn't in the question, but OMG. Uh, and then this person says, It drives me crazy. I don't understand why they think it's okay. These people have been saved for years, some more than me. What should I say to them? A couple of things. Uh, I believe that is a, an improper use of God's name. Uh, I I touched on that in the earlier question when we say things like, oh my God, or I swear to God, um, um, in this particular case, uh, OMG on the the end of text messages and emails, that kind of thing. Uh, And and while it doesn't drive me crazy, I mean, I understand it. Here's the other thing. We need to give them grace. These are expressions, um, not intentional or willful misuse of God's name. Uh, These things have become so commonplace that they're a part of our uh, communications fabric now. Um, So if they're really good friends, then what I would say is, oh, please don't try not to say that around me. It just always bothers me when you do. Maybe that will open up the line of communication. Uh, Maybe they just aren't thinking about it. They they need to know. Um, Maybe some will listen and the Spirit of God will convict them. But this isn't cursing this isn't an intentional willful misuse of god's name uh it's a misuse of god's name just is not intentional and willful and as i say to our church here all the time anonymous motive to god is everything so god's pretty tough he can take it and i don't think he takes particular offense to it because he can see what we can't see he can see into the heart so these are things that you be very very uh careful of and um Uh, I think even the most common one that I hear is people say, oh, Lord. And, um, you know, when we're talking to him, we ought to be talking to him about stuff that matters, not just casual conversation. So if that sounds like an answer that comes out of both sides of my mouth, I apologize. It's just we have to be willing to give people grace. If God wants them to stop, he'll convict their heart um, because he alone knows their heart. So anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Probably doesn't, but that's the very best that I can do. Here is a question from Paul. He says, please explain why the virgin birth is considered an essential of the Christian faith. Now, Paul, you're probably asking this question uh, because the virgin birth is hard to explain to people and, and, and those who are cynics regarding Christianity say, oh yeah, you guys believe that virgins have babies and suddenly there was a, a the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and there was a baby. And our answer is, yeah, we do. Here's why it's an essential of the Christian faith. In Jewish thought, the seed of man is what produced our propensity to sin. It's Adam's seed. We know that from Romans chapter 5. It was Adam that serves as our federal head. We inherited his sin nature. Had a human being who had inherited Adam's sin nature been the father of Jesus, then Jesus necessarily would have been born with human nature. And so the father was our father in heaven. The Holy Spirit hovered over Mary. There was certainly no sex. It was just that that, that, the, the, the seed of God was implanted in the womb of this teenager. And the virgin birth is an essential of the faith because otherwise, then we have no answer for our sin. And since Jesus had to be perfect, since he had to be born without a sin nature, in him is light, there's no darkness at all, we read. Um... I hope that explains why it's so important. Here's another reason it's important. Because if it's not true, if it's not literally true, then we have no veracity regarding our Bible. We have no reason to believe that the rest of the Bible is inspired and written by God. And the Bible is very, very clear, Um, the Hebrew word for a virgin. Uh, Means just that. Now, there are people who say, well, you know, uh, it also sometimes could be translated maiden. Yeah, it could. But the Greek word in the, I'm sorry, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, but the Greek word in the New Testament um, is, is a word that only means one thing and it's very specific. And that word is someone who has never had sex. And so that's why it's important. And Paul, if we don't have a virgin birth of Christ, then we don't have a Christ that can save us from our sins. If we don't have a Christ that can save us from our sins, then we are all lost forever in eternity for in our sin. And um, it just wouldn't be effective any other way. So you're right, it is an essential of our faith. And don't let the mockers, the cynics, the unbelievers... Make you feel dumb because you believe in something like that? You know, I often get this question about Jonah being, oh, and you Christians, you believe in in a man who was in the belly of a whale for three days and didn't die. He was spit up on on the beach. Yeah, we believe it because Jesus said it. Jesus said it. So, Paul, in situations like this, you've got to decide who you believe. Do we believe God? who claims these things infallibly true, literally, historically, explicitly true? Or do we believe the mockers and the cynics who say, well, these things are impossible. Remember, God is supernatural. He can do anything and everything. All we have to do is give him the opportunity. So, Paul, I hope that helps. Let's go to Terry calling online. one. Terry, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Well, I just happened to catch that last question, and, and and have a quick question for you as I talk to people. It um, was Mary a sinner?
2: Uh, yes,
3: That's what Terry. I in guess.
2: her in yeah in, in her Magnificat, uh, mm-hmm. in in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Mary calls Jesus my Savior. Right. And and somebody who doesn't sin doesn't need a Savior. Uh, Paul says all. And the word is all, meaning literally everyone, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all continue to sin continually. So, yes, Mary was a sinner. She wasn't God. And only God is perfect and righteous. And uh, she ceased being Jesus' mother the minute that he became her Savior. So, uh, I would, the, the earthly relationship is there, but Mary was a sinner. She needed to be saved just like you and me. You know, Terry, there's one place in, in the gospel accounts where um, the brothers and sisters of Jesus, and yes, he did have brothers and sisters, meaning Mary and Joseph had other children. Um, there's a place where they went to go get Jesus because they thought he was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's false witness against Jesus, and Mary was in that group. And right. so, uh, yeah, she sinned. She was, we all sinned. She was human, just like you're human and I'm human. And we all sinned. So Mary was not without sin. And Mary was not a virgin for, for the, the rest of her life. So I hope that answers so your question. So we
3: live as the mother of God, is the word revere too strong?
2: Um. Well, no, I don't think it is. I, I don't know. I don't think we need to use that word. I think we well, honor her.
3: And and future generations will call me blessed. Because in talking to all my Catholic friends that I meet, uh, I suggest this to them. It's such a hard barrier for them to get over that she was not at the Immaculate Conception, no. Yeah, no. She she had
2: parents. Yes. Yeah, so so, so, not not Mm -hmm. at all. I just think Revere, because of our our Catholic culture here in San Antonio, I think it's too strong a word. We honor her. Um, right. We we esteem her highly. Um, she was a, a heroine, um, at least from my perspective. She, this is a teenage girl when she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and when the angel appeared to her and told her that that this this thing that was going to change the rest of her life, um, this thing, um, she said, "Well, I am the Lord's servant. Do it." may it be unto me as you have spoken and 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 what courage she had so not only did she have great courage but she was uh, a woman committed to purity that's how she could be chosen to be the 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 mother of jesus Uh, she was also a woman of great 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 faith in god and that alone makes her a hero in my book so we we appreciate her we honor her uh, we we uh, certainly don't overreact to the Catholic uh, supposition that she is without sin herself. Um, I, I think what we have to be careful, Terry, is when we get into the co-redemptrix or people who pray right. to Mary in heaven because, well, you know, if you want to get to the son, you always go to their mother, go through their mother. That's right. Uh, you know, Mary would be embarrassed and humiliated by all of those things. So mm. if 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 she, when we see her in heaven... She will have a very honored place, and she truly is blessed. The word just means happy. Uh, She truly is blessed. But this is a woman who had as difficult a life on this earth as we can possibly imagine. You know, her reputation was smeared. Um, She was thought to be a a promiscuous woman. Uh, The the father of Jesus, it was circulated, uh, was a Roman soldier uh, who Mary was having a relationship with. And she endured that scorn her entire life, and never, never wavered. She knew who Jesus was. She knew who she was. So, uh, we honor her greatly. Okay.
3: Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And as a former Catholic seminary and, and Catholic, my heart's out for all the Catholics uh, because uh-huh. it, for me, it was so hard to stop praying to Mary and to all the other saints. Uh, I,
2: I understand. Hab- habits die hard. Thank you, Terry.
3: That's
2: exactly right. Hey, thank you. <laughs> uh, God bless. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Andrew. Why do we eat pork when several Old Testament scriptures indicate that it's wrong? You're right, Andrew. It is wrong in the Old Testament because the Old Testament Jews were under law. Now, remember, God gave the law not to you and to me. He gave the law to Israel. And God's purpose in giving his law to Israel was twofold. One, to demonstrate his character. This is the holy character of God. And he wanted his people to be separate, different from all of the other pagan peoples in the world at that time. So the reason we eat pork is because Jesus, when he appeared to uh, Peter on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner... um, And and later in the gospel accounts, or earlier rather in the gospel accounts, uh, he declared all foods clean. In fact, when he he had the the vision Peter did of that sheet um, representing the four corners of the earth uh, filled with all kinds of unclean food, And, and he said to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord. And you can't say no, Lord, in the same sentence. But that's what Peter did. And Peter was told, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. Now remember, the Old Covenant isn't for you and for me. The New Covenant, Jesus took the cup, he said, this is the cup of the New Covenant. Jesus changed the rules. Why? Because he fulfilled the Old Testament law. Jesus never ate pork. He fulfilled the Old Testament law, and he established a new law, a new covenant. So we need, Andrew, to read carefully to whom the promises are made, to whom the laws were given, Uh, We also need to understand that there is an entirely new covenant, an entirely new way to approach God every day. So if you want to eat bacon, you eat all the bacon you want. I'm going to go to a call in just a second, but I want to, uh, I, I always tell people, I say, can you imagine what it was like the first time Peter had a bite of a bacon sandwich? Thank you, God, thank you for declaring this clean. And that's exactly what happened. So hope that helps let's go to derek online too derek thanks for calling you're on the air
3: can i say that every time i have a bacon sandwich too thank
2: you god <laughs> i do too derek
3: hey 1st uh, off, bless you for your your ministry i always enjoy listening to your show I'll always enjoy miss paula every time she's on um I i just had a question about a conversation or something you talked about monday regarding acts two mm-hmm. uh when you're talking about the tongue to fire and speaking in tongues and everything i've always understood that translation or that that verse to link back to genesis 11. am i reaching too far or is there, or is there a connection there
2: no, Derek. Very, very good observation. In fact, uh, I just I just finished my study. Uh, we're finishing Acts chapter one this Friday night, but I just I always work ahead, so I just finished uh, preparing uh, my study through Acts chapter two. And really, what the, the what God was doing uh, when he when, when people were able to understand the wonders of God being declared in all languages, He was sort of reversing the curse of the Tower of Babel when He confused everybody's languages. So uh, that's a great observation and that's not uh, a stretch at all. Uh, I think this was God's way of saying now there's a new way of communicating uh, to the whole world and the whole world with one another in the power of God's spirit. So when he made that grand entrance and, and everybody was able to be understood in their own language, uh, that was one of those signature events. And it's, it's sort of the New Testament providing an answer for an Old Testament problem that really had no solution uh, with the, the, the confusing of the languages. So I also view that as a reversal of that judgment uh, at the Tower of Babel. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Pastor Ron.
2: Thank you, Derek. Appreciate it very, very much. See, that's good studying. That's good studying, Derek. I'm grateful. Let's go to Roger holding on line one. Roger, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Yeah. Um, I hate to go here, but there's obviously some other kind of uh, beings in our galaxies. And now what I would like to know was Jacob's Ladder, was it actually a ladder or was it just a porthole? And then when Enoch was with God, walked with God, and then he was gone, and uh, who was it, Elijah that went up in a chariot, Mm -hmm. whirlwind and all that good stuff, Um, do you think that there's beings out there that God created that uh, do not have a spirit?
2: Thank you, Roger. The answer to the question is no. Now there are other type of beings out there, obviously. And when you said uh, clearly there are, uh, I, I thought you were referring to angelic beings or demonic spirits. Um, but but you know, there's no other um, life on on another planet. There's there's no portals. Um, the the story about Jacob and his ladder. Remember that that uh, Jacob went to sleep and it was a dream, and, and it was a, a dream sent by God. And he saw the ladder, and he saw angels ascending, and the order, I think, is important, ascending and descending on that ladder, meaning that God was sending those angels uh, from heaven to minister here on earth, and they would go back to heaven to be with him. But but that was sort of a, a continual um, um, movement of, of angelic beings from heaven to earth. But it wasn't a real ladder. There's no portal into heaven. Uh, we're either with God. In heaven, or we're here on earth. Uh, Those of us, of course, who are believers, are going to be uh, with God in heaven at some point in the future. But but there is no other life form, and and if you're obviously there are other life forms out there. If you meant by that by extraterrestrials or anything like that, uh, there's nothing clear about that because the Bible says nothing whatsoever about it. Uh, There's no indication. That that God did any work of uh, in creation other than creating at some point in eternity past uh, the angelic beings and then the the account of creation here on earth that we have in in uh, Genesis. So uh, um, the, uh, it, it it's a sort of a trap to fall into. We start hearing the stories about alien life forms and things like that it's simply not true i know science fiction fanatics love to think about it uh, but the truth is roger there just isn't uh, anything out there Uh, we have built bigger and bigger and bigger telescopes and the best they can do is say well you know there was ice on mars so there's a sign that there might be life the the planet might be able to support life you know 400 billion years ago or something um that's just a, a waste of the time for a Christian. There's no life out there. Bible says, Jesus speaking, I've told you everything. If there was another planet occupied by people, we would know it. Uh, and there just isn't. So, Roger, thank you for calling. I appreciate it. 340 We're inside about three minutes, I think, for the first half of the program and we would love your calls and questions uh so let me take a question i think i can get to uh in the time we have left uh daniel wants to know is it a sin to cuss uh it is daniel ephesians chapter four chapters four and five colossians chapter three um no coarse speech should come from you only that which honors the lord Um, We need to honor God with our mouths. James says, Brothers, out of the same mouth comes cursing and blessing. This shouldn't be. So it is a sin to cuss. It's also a nasty habit that that represents a horrible, horrible um, image of who Jesus is to the world around us that knows that we're Christians. So this is one of those things Paul tells us in the book of Colossians to put off the, the things that belong to the old nature, put off anger and rage, put off filthy talk, filthy language. So we're, as Christians, to take those things off, and we replace them by putting on the new clothing that he's given us. And that's, uh, as it affects our speech, Daniel, um, that's a mouth that honors the Lord. So, yes, we need to be concerned about our witness, but it is very definitely a sin to to cuss, to use filthy language, um, just as it's a sin to be unkind, uh, using the language to be unkind. Um, we need to be really, really careful about how we represent Jesus because there's always somebody watching. If you, uh, people know you're a Christian, they're always, always watching Um your behavior and they're hoping you cuss and they're hoping you lie and they hope you gossip about people so they can discount the God that you claim to serve so it is very definitely a sin to cuss and we who are Christians need to stop it you know um, we went through a period of time it it seems to have kind of healed itself over the last five years or so but um, early in, in in the 2000s Uh, There was a whole movement started in Seattle with a a very well-known pastor who thought it was really cool to cuss. You know, I'm just trying to relate. I'm just trying to keep it real, he said. My audience seems to appreciate it. Well, I can tell you one audience that didn't appreciate it at all, and that was God. So remember, with our lips, we need to honor God as we honor Him with the rest of our lives. We've got 30 minutes left in today's show, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll free eight seven 630 kslr We'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh
2: welcome back to the last half of the wednesday show hey did i tell you that paula's going to be live in studio with me tomorrow Woke me up i had to cough Paula's going to be live tomorrow. Ladies, it's your day, the day that we dedicate primarily to you. If you have any questions or you have uh, something going on in your life and need any encouragement, um, take advantage of her. She's like the world champion encourager. I know that because she encourages me. Here's a question from anonymous. Let me give the phone numbers in case I didn't. 340 for your live calls. Here's an anonymous question says, Christians are quick to point fingers at gay people saying they're sinners. But why don't they point out obese people? Isn't that a sin too? It seems they are very selective. Um, anonymous, a question like that suggests that you have an agenda. It's not an honest question when you frame it like that. Um, obesity is not a sin. Gluttony is. Gluttony is certainly one cause of of, uh, obesity, but not the only cause for obesity. Uh, and we're talking about different kinds of sins. Now people say, well, all sins are the same to God. They are not. Some sins have much more severe consequences. Some sins allow the enemy of our souls a much deeper inroad. Paul says, when a man sins sexually, he sins against his own body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that inference is very clear that that gives Satan an inroad that we don't need to give him. So, try when you discuss this, not to be so general. You Christians point fingers at gay people. We call, at least if we're sinners, we call sin, sin. Now, let's talk about these two things for a moment. Is there a move in this country by obese people? to make everybody accept obesity, affirm it, and approve it? The answer is no. I could do the same thing with smoking or drinking. Is there a movement in our country to normalize, to affirm any sin other than sexual sin? You know, if we say that homosexuality is a sin, uh, people close businesses people online protest they don't want to be called sinners now I understand that nobody wants to be called a sinner but the truth is if God who is the only arbiter of what is or is not sin he's the only one who has the the power the authority to make the rules remember that we who are Christians are on his side And when God points out sin in somebody's life, he does so because he loves them and he wants better for them. So yes, gluttony is a sin. And no, we don't typically talk about gluttons in church. Now, when we teach verse by verse, we talk about that a lot. And here at Calvary Chapel, because in the New Testament it comes up several times, we talk about the importance of being healthy so that we can serve the Lord. But you know what? We've never had an obese person picket our our church or make threats against our church. We've never had an obese person try to make obesity acceptance a part of an elementary school curriculum. And I think if we're being honest here, we have to understand the nature of the world that we live in. And there is a powerful movement in our country trying to force those of us who believe in God's Word, who believe in Jesus Christ, those of us who are born again, trying to force us to change what we believe. Not only what we believe, but to force us to change what's been taught and believed for more than 2,000 years. I mean, think about that for a moment. For 2,000 years, there has been unanimous agreement about the sin of homosexuality. And in the last decade, that's been challenged. The same thing is true and will be even more so true with this emphasis on transgenderism. And when we stand up and say, this is what God says, this is wrong, you need to repent. We make ourselves targets. That's what's happened in this country. So Anonymous, you need to be honest. And the honest response is that only God gets to pick out what's sin because only God is without sin. Is there maybe a little too much emphasis on homosexuality? Maybe there is in some churches that don't teach the Bible verse by verse, but I can promise you, Anonymous, at this one church, Calvary Chapel, San Antonio, the one I'm responsible for, we talk about homosexuality far less than we talk about people who are heterosexuals living together, not married, having sex with people they're not married to. We talk a lot more about drunkenness. We talk a lot more about drug use than we do homosexuality, by far. And in fact, in my experience, the only place I talk about homosexuality uh, more than, than other sins is here on this radio program when I'm responding two questions. So um, not, not an honest question, I don't think. Let's go to Mason County, Texas, wherever that is, and talk with Ron. Ron, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you. Appreciate you, Pastor Ron. to listen to you quite a bit. One of your, you. your callers was talking about Elijah and, and Enoch. Uh, was that a foreshadowing of the rapture of those guys being taken up? <laughs>
2: You guys guys are good, yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's one of the pictures of the rapture now uh, for Enoch particularly, uh, Ron, because in in Enoch's story, we're told that he he alone walked with God Uh, for 65 years. He walked in a world like everybody else where they were uh, only given to sin uh, all the time. Um, But then he he got a message from God. He believed that message. And then for 300 years, he walked with God. And then he was no more because God took him to be with him. So the idea there is that having fellowship with God, a relationship with God, will deliver us from the coming tribulation. And in Enoch's case, we know that he was uh, was transported to be with Jesus uh, prior to the Genesis 6 flood and uh, that was a flood of judgment, which is a picture or a type of the great tribulation, uh, specific of course to israel but but certainly a picture or a type. Uh, elijah is less of an example of that because um, uh, elijah 's not going to be spared judgment. Elijah was taken up uh, in the in the chariot of fire, to be sure uh, but elijah 's coming back he 'll be here in the great tribulation he 'll be one of the two witnesses. Uh, at uh, at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, along with Moses. So uh, he's not so much a type as e- Enoch is, but Enoch is to be sure. That makes sense.
3: You bet. I appreciate your comment. Okay. Thank you.
2: My pleasure. Thank you very very much. Uh, I just got my said Mason County is 20 miles northeast of Junction. Boy, that's a powerful signal, or you're listening online. Ron, thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate the call. 340-9585. Here is uh, another anonymous question. Uh, Pastor Ron, how do you feel about me finding another man in the church to hold me accountable? Uh, I'm never a fan, Anonymous, of, of that kind of relationship. I think finding a man who is walking with the Lord, somebody you can learn from, is one thing. But here's what asking somebody to hold you accountable does. It usually ends friendships, you know, because if, if you say to somebody, will you hold me accountable? They say, yeah, bro, I'll be checking up on you. How you doing? And they start saying, so how are you doing? If you're if you're having a, a, an issue at that time, you're going to start lying. Uh, you're going to start avoiding that man when you're in sin. Uh, here's what we need to understand as Christians, anonymous accountability to Jesus is the only accountability we need. He provides the strength, He provides the spirit, power to avoid temptation, to say no to our flesh. And if that's not enough for you, then you need to learn more about Jesus. I know it's a very popular notion, this idea of accountability partners and have somebody that you can go to and confess your sins. You need to go to Jesus and confess your sins. You need to be so upset that your sin separates you from God that that holds more weight uh, in your walk than, than any other person could. And accountability, I've just seen so many times when it's affected people negatively. Now, we like the idea that we can help each other. And certainly the idea of men uh, sharpening iron, sharpening iron, men sharpening other people is a good thing. Women uh, are told to go to the older ladies and, 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 and take their counsel in the, in the book of Titus. So uh, the, it's, it's always good to be with people in the Word and talking about Jesus to be sure. But when you focus on your sin so much that you've got to ask somebody else to hold you accountable, uh, I would suggest, Anonymous, that there's something missing in your personal, individual relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, He's the one who died for you. He's the one who sent power from from heaven. Uh, He's the one who's promised never to leave you or forsake you. None of that is true with other human beings. And I think it puts so much pressure on a relationship that ultimately those relationships end up crashing and burning. You know, walking with Jesus is not a 12-step program. Uh, We don't need a human sponsor. What we need is fall in love with Jesus and treasure the time that we have with Him every day so much to such a degree that we don't want to sin. So when temptation comes, instead of wanting to sin and giving in, we'll want to sin, our flesh wants to sin, but we'll say no because we realize that the moment we choose sin, the moment we willfully choose sin, that moment we've asked Jesus to leave the room. I love you, Lord, thanks for dying for my sins, but right now I'm going to do something that's really ugly, so you have to go. Can you imagine the heartbreak? that that represents to Jesus so anonymous learn more about who he is there's great strength in fellowship but the only one you're really accountable to is God if you're in your word if you're spending time with Jesus then he'll always be there for you and 1 Corinthians 10.13 promises that he'll provide a way out from under the pressure of that temptation because he wants you to stand in victory so I hope that helps a little bit uh, let's get our thinking anonymous a little higher set your hearts and minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God don't look around at the solutions of this world thanks a lot 340-9585 uh, I had a, a question that that uh, uh really troubled me today at the gym. Um, somebody wanted to know um, why it is that so many of, of our kids are losing their faith. Um, I've talked about this on the program before, uh, but our kids aren't losing their faith. They didn't have it. I want you to think about something for a moment. We parents, you now obviously I'm really old, and so um, not Paula, just me, and our kids are grown, so we don't have kids at home. But, but generally speaking, we parents drag our kids to church, we, we are involved in church, uh, we know that they lear- learn about the Bible, they hear about Jesus all the time. Uh, we know that they participate in youth groups or children's ministry groups, but so often these days our children's groups and our youth groups have nothing to do with really teaching the Word. It's to entertain them, it's so they can make arts and crafts, it's so that they can hang out with other people. There are youth groups that are filled with like sofas and big chairs and beanbag chairs and air hockey games and things like that. And the kids, of course, love going to that. But you see, that's not faith. And the problem is your kids may be hearing about Jesus, but they're not listening to him. They're not making changes in the way they live based on what they hear at church and so with sort of a superficial relationship like that when they go to college and, and some PhD tells them that it's silly to believe in God it's 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 just mythology or pagan nonsense because of that person's position of authority it's easy to believe they get made fun of they're mocked and kids want to belong and because their relationship with Jesus was superficial at best they're easily dragged away so what we've got to do parents, what we've got to do anybody listening in this audience who's a pastor or a youth pastor what we're going to do is teach the Bible and always challenge them always exhort them to make changes based on what they hear To dig in and study their Bibles. Moms and dads think about it. How much time do your kids spend in the Bible compared to the time they spend with their noses buried in their telephones on Instagram or Snapchat or some other forum, Facebook or others? See, that's where good parenting comes in. The Bible needs to be taught at home, the Bible needs to be lived at home. But your children need to dig in for themselves. As they begin to be weaned off mom and dad's faith, their faith has to be real. And unless their faith is genuine, then what's going to happen is that they're going to be persuaded by some scholar that what they've always believed isn't true. So going to church isn't enough coming up with a new program to interest your kids isn't enough your children need to fall in love with Jesus and that should be the focus of your ministry as a parent from the time that they can begin to communicate and understand this isn't about you have to do you can't do oh this is okay, it's about Jesus and about falling in love with Jesus, just him there is no other answer hope that helps. Here is a question from Oscar. Oscar wants to know if there are hidden codes in the Bible. Uh, Oscar, the, the answer to the question is no, that's absolute silliness. Um, gosh, I guess it's been uh, 15 years or so. I think that the, the, the main guy was a guy named Grant Jeffries. Um, but uh, fortunately, this is sort of another one of those fads in and out of the church. It's kind of hidden or kind of cooled away Uh, but no there are no hidden codes in the Bible not at all not only are there no hidden codes in the Bible uh, if there were hidden codes in the Bible it would fly in the face of the character of God who wants us to know what the Bible says so instead of looking for hidden codes in the Bible Oscar just look for Jesus and he will will be the one that provides you the answers, the solutions to the problems that you have Three four zero ninety five eighty five. how are we doing on time here? About six minutes. Okay, here's a question, Anonymous. Um, he or she says, I have a question about the Old Testament. Why is it necessary since we have the New Testament? Well, I opened this program, Anonymous, by saying that tonight's Bible study, uh, the last part of, of First Samuel chapter 17, David and Goliath's story, has so much value, so much practical value for the New Testament Christian's life. It helps us to fight. It helps us to understand the nature of the fight. It helps us to refocus uh, when we're in one of those battles, whether it's a spiritual battle or maybe just life is kind of overwhelming you. And, and David has so much to teach us. And David, what he did, he did without the power of the Holy Spirit in the sense that the Spirit didn't live in David like, like he lives in us. So the, the Old Testament is, is magnificent. Now let me add a couple of other things. I've often characterized the Old Testament, and I don't know if they still even have these anymore, but when I was growing up, uh, there was a whole, always a whole bunch of connect-the-dots coloring books, and you'd connect the dots by finding the numbers in sequence, and then there would be something that would develop as a picture, and then you'd take the crayons and color them in. Well, the Old Testament is like the connect-the-dots, and the New Testament is what colors in the picture that emerges. And in the, the, the Old Testament, every page, every story, every book is about Jesus. And we see so many pictures, the two calls that we've had about the Tower of Babel and and uh, that being reversed on the day of Pentecost. And then the, the picture of Enoch as a type of the rapture uh, because of his fellowship being being taken away to be with God. Um, those are, are, are invaluable pictures that we're given. And because we need those pictures when we see the fullness of that doctrine unfolded in the New Testament, then our appreciation for the majesty, the the bigness of this book we call the Bible is overwhelming. Remember, this is a book, 66 books written over about 1500 years by 40 different authors, And every one of those authors over all of those years was God pushing the pin. So it's all his story. And that's why it's necessary. And that's why it's wonderful. Now, I'll be very honest here. And I understand that a lot of the Old Testament gets really, really tedious. Uh, I've never been a huge fan of of really digging into the prophets. Uh, There's great value there. But, you know, when you read uh, Isaiah, when you read Jeremiah, when you read Ezekiel, and when you read uh, Lamentations, you get to the place where finally you say, enough, enough. God said to straighten up. They didn't. God judged them. So we understand that. But then there are those prophecies that tell us to expect the one that we call Jesus. And you think, wow, it was worth getting through all of that other stuff. So it's really important, Anonymous, that you become a student of the Old Testament. It's God speaking to you using his people, Israel, as an example. And what I tell the church here all the time is that whatever happens to Israel in the physical realm happens to us, New Testament Christians, in the spiritual realm. And it really helps to know what that is. So be encouraged. David writes in and he says, if a pastor is supposed to be the husband of one wife, why are divorced men allowed to be pastors? Well, David, this is why we need to really, really study the Bible. Dig in. Um, Paul says, be a workman, rightly dividing the word of God. Uh, Study to show yourself approved. Um, That's why we're given these wonderful tools. Technology is great. You know, in the the old days, uh, you had to be a, a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar to really understand Um, the the literal impact of some of these passages of Scripture. Uh, We don't have to do that anymore because we've got uh, a concordance. We've got all these different Bible programs, Robertson's Word Pictures, Vines, and so many others. Um, um, And what it really says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that the pastor is supposed to be a one-woman man. Now, why would it be put like that? Because in that culture, there were people... Uh, some of them slave owners who had many, many wives, some of those wives were slaves. Uh, Throughout the entire course of history, uh, men have accumulated wives. And in the culture to whom Paul was writing, he was simply saying that's not to be true of Christians, and especially to those uh, who are held to a higher accountability standard, those who are called to be pastors. So it doesn't say they're not supposed to be divorced. It says they're to be one, and literally it's one a one-woman man, loyal to one woman. We're also told that the home has to be managed well, meaning that it has to be a house that's under the authority of Jesus Christ, and we who are pastors... Are accountable to do that, but but it doesn't mean that a divorced man necessarily is uh, disqualified. I think certainly some divorced men who are back in churches pastoring uh, are, are disqualified or should be disqualified uh, because they divorced for non-biblical reasons. Uh, they found somebody else, uh, and because churches are willing to forgive, especially if somebody is a gifted enough speaker. Um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll just kind of turn the other eye. Well, nobody's perfect kind of thing. Um, but generally speaking, um, we who are pastors, we love Jesus. We love his word. Generally, we love our wives. And if we don't, if our homes are not in order, then we should excuse ourselves until our homes are in order. So, David, I hope that answers your question. You know, I'll say this, all of my staff pastors here at Calvary Chapel, we have eight of them, every one of them knows that the moment there's real trouble in their home, when their wives aren't walking uh, together with them, they're partners, uh, when a husband and wife is struggling and there's rebellion, discord in the home. Uh, Every one of my pastors knows they're going to be asked to step down and fix it. That's the most important thing before they can effectively minister in in the church to the people that I love. They've got to be men who love their wives the way Christ loved the church, giving themselves up for her. Their home has to be a home that honors the Lord. If that's not true, then I certainly don't want them on staff. Now that doesn't mean we just turn them away, what it means uh, very clearly is that we want them to have a time to get right and focus on the things that matter the most. So I hope that answers your question. Hey, appreciate the calls today. Appreciate some of the great study habits some of you guys are demonstrating. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up For Life. Remember, ladies, day, day, tomorrow, and tonight. You can go to calvarysa.com and watch it online. We're going to see David take down Goliath. May the Lord bless you and keep you, Lord willing. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 with Paul. see you then.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.